I'm Mark Litt, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we focus on a single book, Sarah Alcazaz of SOAS, uh, and her new book, Politics in the Crevices, Urban Design and the Making of Property Markets in Cairo and Istanbul, uh, which is just published by Duke University Press. Before we get to Sarah's book, though, I just wanted to say a brief word about the moment that we're living through. Uh, we're two weeks in at the time of this recording uh, of a, of... Uh, Israel's war with Gaza, uh, which followed from the October 7th uh, Hamas attack on southern Israel and uh, and the horrible atrocities that were carried out during that assault, uh, which has resulted in the in the succeeding weeks in the complete and total blockade uh, and massive bombardment of Gaza by Israel as it prepares for what at this time continues to be an impending ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. And I Across the academic disciplines, uh, uh, people are trying to get involved in some way to make their voices heard, to bring their academic expertise and knowledge to helping to understand the situation in Gaza. We here at POMEPS um, have done a number of episodes of this podcast in the past focused on this topic. We plan to do more in the future. Uh, for the time being, I just simply want to draw attention uh, to uh, my own uh, my, my blog in which I have collected a number of statements made by professional associations with regard to the conflict, including um, the Middle East Studies Association, uh, the American Anthropologists Association, as well as statements by a number of uh, collect collectivities of academic experts, sociologists, academic experts, and the like. And I don't usually uh, direct people to my blog from this podcast, but I think it's worthwhile simply to go and look at the range of activities that are being taken by um, academic experts within the POMEPS community as we try and grapple with what is a truly unprecedented um, uh, attack on a captive civ civilian population, uh, which at the time of this recording has claimed over 7,000 uh, Palestinian lives, including uh, by, by recent accounts, over 2,000 children who are clearly and manifestly innocent of any involvement in Hamas's attack on Israel and um, trying to address the uh, humanitarian and, uh, and political implications of the situation in Gaza is and is going to be one of the major moral and political and academic um, issues that is going to confront Middle East studies as it has been for many, many years. Um, so we'll have more on that on the podcast in coming weeks. But for now, um, let's turn to our conversation with Sarah Alcazaz about her book, Politics in the Crevices. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Sarah Alcazaz of SOAS and the author of a brand new book, Duke University Press, called Politics in the Crevices, Urban Design and the Making of Property Markets in Cairo and Istanbul. Sarah, it's wonderful to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Uh, it's it's a real uh, joy to be here. Actually, I'm very excited about this. It's, 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 I've been yeah, I've been waiting for this book for a long time, and I'm, and I'm so glad to finally have a chance to read it. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it, and um, you know what what was the main um, contribution you were aiming for? What made you want to write it? Uh, these are great questions. Um, so, I mean, I guess I came to this book because I had a a really two things happened. Uh, around the same time, and a really deep interest in inequality, uh, redistribution, 
um, in class politics. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, uh, in Cairo growing up and in college. Um, and, you know, over time, kind of as part of my coming of age is, is, is really kind of irritating me how much or, or you know, just haunting this idea mm -hmm. of inequality. Um, and when I started to read deeply into political science and especially scholarship on the Middle East, it was kind of irritating how little uh, we took this question head on, right? Um, we were coming at it from, you know, uh, talking about authoritarianism, um, even talking about patronage politics. Um, but I felt like the class politics element of it uh, wasn't quite as present as it should be within the discipline. Outside of the discipline is a different conversation. Um, so, so on the one hand, I'm coming in with that, that um, sort of mm -hmm. interest. And then on the other hand, as I started my graduate education, um, I was very early on introduced to uh, fascinating scholarship and urban studies, infrastructure studies. Um, and generally political geography and anthropology that was looking at the political from fascinating places, right? So it just blew my mind how um, these that scholarship was seeing the political in ways that were quite different from how I were was being trained to see them um, uh, in our discipline. And I felt like it was time to marry these conversations because there's something really crucial about how we as political scientists think um, systematically and kind of theorize about the political. Um, but uh, I think in that sense, we've also put ourselves in a little bit of a straight jacket in terms of how we then see and imagine the boundaries, um, the where the political is happening and really the loca location the political is really you know, at the heart of this project. Um, so, so coming from those two places, um, you know, the project then starts to, you know, it's, it's a long way. And yes, this book has been a long time coming because this was pretty difficult to build up. Um, but eventually um, I came to kind of uh, the point of, you know, what I'm going to study here is the politics of neoliberalism um, and the politics of redistribution uh, within neoliberalism. And um, I'm going to do it from the lens of struggles around urban transformation in Istanbul and in Cairo. And I'm sure we'll talk quite a bit um, later on about why I'm choosing these sites. Um, but overall, the, the contribution here is um, to start from the point of frustration um, in, in, in kind of from the literature and political economy, critical political economy um, that was looking at uh, neoliberalism and kind of almost defining it as a space where sort of class politics went to die, right? Um, in a sense, the, um, the kind of success of a corporate capitalist project to hijack the space of the political economic and successfully kind of produce a machinery of dispossessive politics through neoliberalism. Or on the other hand, you know, a more kind of less critical but political economy literature that was seeing kind of defining neoliberalism as the end of the welfare state um, and the kind of dominance of market strategies um, 
And uh, sort of with that, an assumption, again, that we're sort of moving away from extra market redistributive policies, right? Uh, subsidies, particular kinds of uh, rent controls. In my case, I'm looking at the city, so that matters quite a bit. Um, uh, particular forms of labor politics and so on. Um, and th I found that very frustrating um, because it kind of, there was almost an acceptance um, that a particular form of class politics had disappeared. Um, and I just didn't find that true on the ground, right? Um, and so, but I, I took their point that if you look at these familiar redistributive places, you, that was a natural conclusion to come to. Um, and so my project was to say, wait a minute, what if we open up the study of neoliberal politics to unfamiliar sites? What happens then? What do we see then? And I said, I think a pretty unfamiliar site is looking at something like the ur you know, urban design, not even urban politics, but the design of buildings, the design of infrastructure, the design of highways and, and roads and, and so on and so forth, um, water and sewage systems, right? When we look at that, um, are we going to see something different um, about neoliberalism, about these class and redistributive politics that I care about? Um, and my answer is yes, right? Um, and I'm going to keep it short here. But uh, the idea here is to say, you know, actually, what I end up doing is looking at neoliberalism as process rather than as outcome, right? And I take to heart someone like... Um, you know, uh, uh, Michel Calon and uh, Kurai Chalishkan de defining neoliberalism as the process of marketization. Um, and in my case, really interested in marketization of politics. Um, to say, if we take that part without assuming what would happen with marketization, what do we see? Um, and through the study of urban transformation, I'm arguing that what you see is actually a very vibrant terrain of redistributive politics, of a struggle over the redistribution of resources. I look specifically at property markets. And so what I end up seeing is a battle for housing that we think is done, right? That we think has been conquered by a particular kind of dispossessive machine. I'm going to argue against that uh, and instead say that there are quite a few political projects at play here. Um, but the way to see them and the way to understand them is that these very political projects are operating from within the logics of the market, uh, within kind of what we are calling this machine, rather than some dispossessive machine on one side and kind of outsider opposition on the margins pushing against it. Um, and how do, you know, I, I, I'll go at length at some other point uh, into how I see this actually working, but but that's really the big takeaway here is is let's let's open up this black box that we're calling you know marketization of politics. Let's see how that actually works. Let's open up things like what we call value and what we call um, markets, really, and their logics. Um, and are we going to find something interesting about politics? My argument mm -hmm. is yes. And fortunately, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, and, and that's really the crux of the, the book. 
So one of the things which is really strong about the book that I really liked was that, as you know, I mean, neoliberalism, neoliberalization gets thrown around a lot as sort of like a buzzword. It's like the answer to everything, but you make it very concrete and you really dig, dig into the actual mechanisms and what it actually means in practice and uh, through your focus on housing and real estate and the like. And so that, I think that really makes it much more concrete than it often, instead of just being like this, like floating signifier in the background. Um, but, you know, in terms of what you're saying, I, I, I forgive me, I'm telescoping several of your sentences together because it really captured the crux of what you're saying here. What you're seeing is the displacing of political struggles away from overtly political arenas into markets, but the politics don't disappear. And then I love this phrase, they seep into the city's built environment. So tell us a little bit more about that in terms of what does this all mean in terms of what types of politics we're now seeing in your book? Amazing. Um, yeah, so that is kind of where I get to, right? Okay, so if we're going to find politics, where's that politics? How does it work? Um, and so on. And basically, the big argument here is that, um, you know, and, and yes, thank you for kind of appreciating the fact that I really care about opening up what we mean by neoliberalism. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, like, when when I, you know, was presenting this, a lot of people were like, are we going to hear about neoliberalism again? Like, <laughs> we're totally done with this. Mm -hmm. uh, but I but I just felt strongly that we really hadn't scratched the surface because we kept throwing it around, as you're saying, um, with assuming what it means and kind of moving forward. Right. Um, and so I did keep it out of the title of the book. <laughs> I got that advice <laughs> sure kind <did>. of it. <laughs> um, but I, I felt strongly about, um, and really because I, end, I ended up studying markets, right? Um, and and sort of seeing how markets as process operate. Um, and the argument is that really, you know, if you're going to understand the battle over housing, um, that I argue is still there, um, what you need to look for is, um, you know, what is actually happening is a battle over um you know, manipulating the market uh, rather than accepting kind of particular, uh, you know, this, I, this this grand sort of Adam Smith idea of clearing, you know, markets, uh, supply and demand just operate, kind of appear. Obviously, that's actually not what Adam Smith said, but that's how it's being used, right? Um, but what's really interesting is to think about what is making demand? What is making supply? At the heart of it is, is what we think of as value. What is valued here, right? Um, and for any market to operate, um, value is created. There's a lot of work that goes into producing value. Um, and what I argue is that, um, you know, what transforms a home into a, real, a piece of, you know, real estate on the market is is a contestation over its value and that it's never kind of taken for granted. And so much of that work operates at the level of urban design, architecture, planning, right? Um, and so what I'm saying is that uh, there's quite a bit of work, uh, you know, to get to the crevices here. Um, all of that work around manipulating value um, is is not just haphazard, is not individual. There are entire political projects here that are working to manipulate value in particular directions. So some projects working to manipulate value so that we you know, recover and secure affordable housing in the city very ardently, 
right? As collective projects, not as some, you know, individual here or there. Um, but also on the flip side, um, the many ways in which we think about this corporate capitalist class that is here to kind of take over the city um, don't just appear, right? There's a lot of work into that, to, to the production of that kind of transfer of wealth. Um, and that happens through a manipulation of this thing that people have come to prize as the market, right? Um, so even on the upper end of the market, there's all this distortion and this manipulation of the market. And that's how you end up with um, uh, kind of uh, this battle. Um, and the way to do that distortion is, in fact, quite subtle. And that's why I, I'm saying we should kind of think about these unfamiliar sites, because it's the subtle work of urban planning, urban design that is being used to manipulate the market intentionally, unintentionally. We're going to get into that conversation. Um, but these are these are political projects that are working through these quite machinations of urban urban planning and design. And when they do that um, and, and kind of work towards uh, producing what I call particularistic value, that is particular group valuing markets in ways different from others. And that is kind of how you then distort it in particular directions. Um, when you do all of that work, there there is a constant kind of project to make it seem like this is not a project of class politics, right? Um, that this is just simply kind of operating within the logics of the market. Here's what we're doing with, with these particular real estate to mask that politics, which is no longer kind of popular in this moment, right? Um, and what I argue is that it doesn't actually go, you know, disappear, this politics. It just becomes displaced. Um, and when you read more of the book, you'll see that there's kind of this whole conversation around the displacement of that politics onto decisions like, you know, what color should the paint of a building be? Uh, how many bathrooms should a home have? Uh, so on and so forth. And that this doesn't go uncontested, right? That becomes re-politicized um, over and over again. And this re-politicization operates not at the level of, hey, I want affordable housing in the city, but at the level of Again, the paint colors and the and the where's the sewage network going and so on and so forth. And so a lot of the politics that we think has disappeared is at work, um, but it's at work around the crevices of the city, places that are much, much harder to recuperate as a polity. And that creates a very kind of um, a politics that is there, but is also festering in particular ways um, and, and, and difficult to kind of recuperate. And it takes very different forms in the two different cities that you study because it's responding to different incentives, uh, kind of the history of institutional design. And so in a sense, you really get a lot of leverage on these questions by looking at two quite different um, cities. Tell us a little bit about this and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about your research itself. Um, you chose Cairo and Istanbul, two major cities. Um, why did you choose them? What were you looking for? Why do you think these were, these were good places to see this new neoliberalizing logic play out? Um, I mean, I, I came to the two cities because I was really interested in, um, you know, politics of inequality, but also, you know, politics of cities and layered cities. I knew I was going to do something with history um, because I could see that heritage um, in, in the formal spaces of the city was becoming quite an important um, kind of space 
uh, for working with um, in, in urban transformation projects, um, mostly um, at, at, like around the region. Um, and so one of the things, you know, it was basically I came to the two cities because they were two of the largest cities in the region. Um, I had command of the, the languages um, and, uh, you know, and they they kind of had similar experiences uh, with a very kind of aggressive neoliberalization, um, but also under very different kinds of regimes um, that to me was pretty interesting. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I got to the two cities. Um, now, the, the first part of the book kind of um, moves into, you kind of gesture to this, um, a movement towards kind of thinking about you know, how do we get here, right? Um, instead of kind of jumping to this contemporary moment, which, which is part two and, and mostly kind of dealing with the ethnography that I did. Um, in part one, I really kind of wanted to grapple with the histories upon which the struggle is layered. And I wanted to think about class politics more deeply. Like how can we understand it differently, um, even from a historical lens, if we center a spatial material affective experience of the city. Um, and because it's only if you do that kind of as a long durée project, can you start to really understand how it operates today? Um, and I started from this kind of actually political science C puzzle um, of, you know, I'm going to Cairo, I'm going to Istanbul. I, you know, like a lot of, you know, uh, scholars of Cairo assume we're looking at a more authoritarian context than we are in Turkey. This is, um, uh, you know, 2011, 2012. So it's a little bit pre the moment when people have, you know, also moved to talking about Turkey in far more authoritarian terms. Um, and I am quite actually puzzled by how much more violent um, urban transformation is in Turkey than it is in Cairo. And I start from there to kind of look at the history of poverty regimes in both cities um, and kind of a very interesting history of rent control in Cairo, um, for example, that makes uh, makes things look very different um, than they do in Turkey. Um, but as I do this, I then delve into thinking about, you know, what is class politics here? Um, and as I start to do this, and how are how is property kind of entwined in class politics? And as I try, you know, start to do this, I want to move away from looking at class as this or, or redistribution as this pendulum, right? It's when this particular class is strongest that we are going to see, you know, stronger, uh, you know, uh, rent controls. If this class is stronger, we're going to see more of uh, deregulation of property markets and so on. Um, and instead, I say, actually, the transforming city itself, right, um, how water ecology changes in the city, how um, pollution operates, how it becomes mobilized by NGOs over time, how um, disaster and its afterlives are lived, how um, things like that operate uh, is actually transforming those that property and transforming who becomes, um, you know, who owns, who rents, so on different time periods and contingently comes together with politics that produces strength and weakness in particular coalitions. And it's really understanding these things together that gets us to see then 
sort of the violence of um, of that those property transfers that I ultimately argue actually what we're seeing in Cairo is also quite violent. Um, it just looks very different mm-hmm. uh, because of the of of how these transfers are enabled in Cairo in very subtle ways, whereas it's impossible to to transfer wealth so subtly in Turkey because of how class pol- uh, coalitions operate. No, it's really interesting. So this is a sentence that uh, you don't often hear said out loud, but I'm going to say it anyway. When you started talking okay. about control, I got excited because it plays such a really interesting role in the book that I had never really thought about before. Um, and because it's so important to what you're talking about, could you walk us through this a bit and kind of rent control, property, and what that did to the way that different classes valued um, these buildings and, and these units? Sure. Um, I'll try anyway, it's a very long (laughs) kind of, uh, I'll I'll try to keep it very short. So uh, let's start from Cairo, um, because Cairo is where you have uh, rent Mm -hmm. control uh, for, uh, you know, more than half a century. Um, Basically, I'm tracing its history back to um, uh, World War II. And and actually, uh, a lot of people see it just as a socialist project, but it's actually born uh, in a moment of war, which is pretty interesting to me. Um, and yeah. um, stays, uh, you know, it, it becomes molded depending on the political project of leaders over time. But what's really interesting is that rent control, uh, you know, is one of the very few subsidies that remains completely constant uh, regardless of the political project for a very long time. So, you know, from 1947 to 1996, you have almost no movement, actually more rigid rent controls coming into place. So not with, you know, Sadez and Fatah or open door policies, um, none of that changes um, rent control. And, and, you know, I'm not going to be the only one who says this, but obviously a big part of it is that these are subsidies um, that, the state is not directly paying for, right? It's it's a particular landed class. Um, and in this case, a landed class that is quite um, dis- dispersed in the city because we're talking about an urban landed class um, and not quite organized um, that then has to um, shoulder this this particular subsidy um, for for the, the, the 50 years um, and then, and you know starts to change, but um, but having rent control in place produces several dynamics. Um, one of them is that this rent control is actually inheritable, um, and so you can't get you know you can't get uh, landlords don't get their buildings back except in very very specific circumstances. One obviously if the the tenant leaves um, and you know leaves the contract, which barely ever does happens. Um, but mostly if it's, uh, you know, if buildings fall apart, um, if uh, actually like full demolition, things like that, that would um, nullify a rent control contract. Which means they're happy um, buildings go. Sorry? 
because they're happy to see these buildings go because they're losing money on them. Yeah. And especially if your own house is not in that building. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you see a lot of uh, issues around maintenance because then tenants are going to be forced into maintaining their buildings rather than landlords um, and so on. And, and so I talk about this kind of emotional um, labor and, and, and act like financial burden that these buildings become for owners um, over a long period of time. Um, and so, you know, uh, what ends up happening is an urban fabric that is very badly, um, uh, you know, maintained uh, over time, especially in the, the core of the city and the historical areas of Cairo, um, but really kind of all over the formal city, right? Um, and so, uh, and this isn't necessarily uh this isn't absolutely not like a, a call against rent control over to, overall but a call to kind of talk about responsible state sponsorship of rent control right um to make sure that it comes with kind of a set of policies and regulations that makes it sustainable both for people renting and for owners um but basically what ends up happening is because this value of these buildings has dissipated so much over that half century when heavily capitalized um, corporate classes try to buy up the city, uh, then and transform the middle of the city, for example, uh, like this Malay Consortium project that I talk about in downtown, it becomes pretty easy to do that because the value of these buildings is now so much less than it used to be mm -hmm. to its owners, right? Um, whereas the same is absolutely not true in Turkey. It's almost the opposite. Right. Um, because uh, in Turkey, actually, a lot of the buildings in, in the center of the city uh, are owned by a working class who there's a very long history in the book about how this happens. Um, but a working class that comes to um, own this these buildings um, after a massive exodus from the city, uh, from minorities, from an economic elite, uh, so on and so forth, massive violence against uh, minorities in the city um, in the 50s and the 60s, um, that leaves a lot of its urban fabric um, open to basically occupation. And what happens is a lot of electioneering happens by way of uh, through which a lot of people get retroactive deeds to these buildings. Uh, and then they become uh, incredibly attached to them. Um, uh, and, and it's very difficult to get them to leave them, especially if they're going to see um, a lot of transformation and infrastructure and so on in the city boosting the value of their buildings and they want to go nowhere, right? Uh, and it's almost impossible to simply buy out all these populations in the way that that Kyrian capitalists did. Um, and that is kind of where um, I see a lot of the argument around, you know, different institutional histories um, to to these uh, behind kind of yeah. uh, the value of these of these homes transforms the property regimes quite a bit. So now let's talk about now, that was, that's the first half of the book, but then uh, kind of the heart of the book is the ethnographies that you did in Istanbul and in, uh, and in Cairo. So let's talk about those a little bit and kind of what you see as you observe the uh, these kinds of politics in the crevices in terms of the, the heritage politics, the heritage designations and these new communal designs. Maybe we can start in Cairo and then we can go to Istanbul. Um, and so tell us about some of the things you saw in Cairo as you um, as you tried to explore these these dynamics. Um, absolutely. Uh, so. 
the way I designed this product, since I haven't talked much about this, is I looked at six neighborhoods, um, three in each city. Uh, kind of uh, the idea was to do an ethnography in those neighborhoods of, uh, and I chose them because they were undergoing large urban transformation projects. So, a lot of the time, uh, these homes were being uh, kind of either you know uh, full restorations of historical buildings or um, infra massive infra infrastructure projects. A lot, some of them went through quite a bit of demolition as well. So big, big you know, transformative projects. Um, and so, you know, and I wanted to stick to the formal city rather than the informal city, simply because there's quite a bit of work on informality in the Middle East, uh, not quite as much on, on formal cities. Um, and I felt like it's also going to allow me to work with um, these heritage neighborhoods. Um, and I ended up looking at a project in Cairo um, that was run by the Aga Khan Trust for Culture, um, a pro another project run by the Ministry of Culture and a third project um, by the Ismaili Consortium in downtown Cairo. And um, basically, I mean, what I'm arguing here is that uh, instead of looking at these projects nominally, what they claim they are just sort of only mm -hmm. sort of claim what they're doing, but also kind of look at deeper levels of what they're doing. Um, and as I kind of dug deep into how I saw, for example, um, the team uh, working with the Aga Khan project um, talk about, you know, uh, urban design, but also real estate markets, but also heritage, all, all these things together, um, I started to formulate, you know, a, a kind of an argument about what I, an analysis of, of what they were doing that went beyond, you know, here is a project that is coming to do some historical restoration in Cairo after they did the Azhar Park. Um, and instead I saw them as doing something that I then again saw in Istanbul uh, with the EU project, which I'll talk about in quite mm -hmm. in, in soon. But, um, but there was a lot of interest in sort of making, you know, restoring affordable housing. That this isn't just about the heritage of the city, but also the fact, the the cognizance that so much of this urban fabric was lived by people who were um, of the lower rungs of the socioeconomic class, right? And um, that it was very, very important to keep them there, right? To maintain their homes, but also like alleviate um, a lot of the issues they were dealing with in the city. Um, and so I see that as a project for safeguarding affordable housing in the city. Mm -hmm. And the way I saw it operating was um, different from place to place. So um, I'll give you a, a very kind of specific example of how I got to this. Uh, so I was talking to um, a lot of people in Darb al-Ahmar, and one of the things that really struck me is that as they talked to me about how, you know, their homes were being restored by the Aga Khan, um, but they also had some, you know, they were very happy that they were getting these grants to restore their homes that now look, mm -hmm. you know, amazing compared to what they used to. Um, but they also had, you know, these, you know, questions, right? Like, why did... They decide, for example, and this is one of the things that I saw over and over, that water pumps would be shared in the building. So all of your 
Uh, it used to be that people could control um, their wider pumps and pipes a little bit more, but but they decided that everything would be shared. And um, so, you know, um, if you wanted to use water, you had to call your neighbor and make sure that they weren't using the pump at the same time, things like that. So I asked um, the urban planners uh, about this, right? And I said, you know, I figured there must be some really like technical reason why they were doing this. And the really interesting thing is the answer wasn't technical, right? It was, well, we're, you know, if they can't speak, you know, we're not going to build six pumps in the building uh, because the main uh, thing we want to see is these neighbors speaking to each other. Um, and if they speak to each other, then we're creating community. And if we create community, then we have people who care for their spaces together. And so you start to see the layers of this. And then they say, you know, what we see is that people who are invested in neighborhoods won't leave. And what we care about is that they stay and affordable housing stays in the city. Um, and so they're mobilizing this language of community in really interesting ways um, to transform the value of the neighborhood for its residents. When I read that, I, you know, when I read that anecdote, it really struck me about that whole thing uh, from an ethnographic perspective about how you can't do politics behind the back of your subjects. I think that's exactly what they were trying to do, like not reveal yeah. motives and try and shape politics. And it, it was just really fascinating. It, it, it's so interesting because honestly, I mean, there is quite a bit of logics that keep operating there that people don't know about in Darbal mm -hmm. Ahmad. And so people will ask questions like, why did this application get granted and not this application? People don't know the reason for it. When you ask the experts, again, it's something about community or something about, you know, the, the societal engineering at work here. Um, and I argue because I actually then heard a lot of rumors about these projects, right, and what they're actually there to do. And I argue exactly as you're saying, right, if you're not going to be telling people what you're there to to do, they're going to be suspicious, right? Um, so there's quite a bit of um, uh, suspicion that then is created around these projects uh, That's that the book delves into quite a bit as well. And then you go to Istanbul and you've got these, you know, working class people who have these houses, which are just like astronomically growing in value. And then the heritage people come in and get to work. Tell us about that. Cause that, that was also a very different dynamic but also a really interesting one. Yeah, I mean, honestly, right, you have, um, what's interesting here is this project starts not as a heritage project, but starts in Habitat mm. conference, and, and is really about, again, safeguarding affordable housing in the city. Um, but they don't, you know, they're, they're the same, these are experts who are trained in the same fields, they're trained in probably some of the same universities, they're talking about the same things. Um, but in Istanbul, you don't see them turning towards something like, you know, community and communal networks and so on, to produce this invested resident. Um, and instead, you see them turning to the language of heritage um, quite a bit. Uh, from very early on, and you look at the Habitat documents, they're talking about heritage very early. Um, and you sort of, um, and, it, and it's really interesting. And, and the, the chapter kind of grapples with um, how heritage becomes mobilized um, as, as kind of a project for affordable housing, but also becomes repoliticized to bring back a lot of identity politics that gets suppressed through this masking of class politics. Like what kind of um, politics? 
Oh, um, so so my argument, right, is that like if you're going to be the subtle, you know, put put forward a subtle class politics through a heritage project, um, then you also want to make sure that the heritage project is itself depoliticized, right? And and that's pretty difficult to do in a city like Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Um, you go to two neighborhoods that historically had um, largely Jewish and Greek um, communities that then uh, had a major exodus um, because people, uh, you know, because of the violence that happened in the 1950s and 1960s, people either were forced to leave um, or, um, uh, you know, uh, actually chose to leave because of the, or, you know, uh, worried about the violence and left. Um, and then you have all these communities coming in uh, into these spaces from the Black Sea area, from um, uh, the Eastern Turkey and so on and so forth. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the when the EU says, I'm going to come in and do a heritage preservation project, the first thing that people, um, you know, worry about is, uh, is this just a project? And, you know, this becomes a very strong rumor in the neighborhood that this is just a project to bring the Greeks back to the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, <laughs> and of course, the idea here is to say this is a project um, about, you know, heritage just because historical neighborhoods are important regardless of the identity they may or may not signify. And I talk a lot in the book about this kind of environmentalization of heritage as a project. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't really get uh, bought up by people. And there's this rumor campaign. Um, but the rumor campaign always goes back to the deeds, right? Like, so what happens to property deeds? Um, why are we signing contracts with the EU that say that we can't sell our houses for the next five years? Now, if you talk to experts, they say the whole idea is that we don't want you to, um, you know, for this affordable housing to then become gentrified. Um, but if you talk to the dwellers, they're like, well, there must be something here at work that may mm-hmm. be taking our houses um, and, and, you know, giving them to, to uh, people who used to live here. It's a very kind of lived um, anxiety, right? Um, but, uh, but it's interesting because it works out in the urban design as well, right? One of the families I look at, um, says, you know, uh, they had two bathrooms in their home. The EU come in and say, we need to remove one of your bathrooms, um, because it's not in the original, uh, architecture or plan of this house. And they say, uh, well, I won't take your money if you're going to remove my, my bathroom, uh, and you wouldn't understand that. Neither would the Greeks who lived here before, because Muslims need to pray five times a day and use several bathrooms. Whereas, you know, uh, whether it's the not, you know, what they see as non-practicing, who knows if they are, um, but but they see as kind of a either non-practicing Turkish experts working with the EU or Western experts working with the EU would not understand kind of that religious um, need, and so it comes back to repoliticize it through identity politics again in really interesting ways. What's also interesting here, and, and uh, you know, maybe this have to be the last question, is that the way you work across scale from the micro to the macro. So you've got like at one level, right, these incredibly intimate stories about the EU says we have to have these kinds of lights, but those are dangerous. We don't want to put those in. There's a reason we got rid of those. Uh, <laughs> we don't want 30 year old light fixtures in our house um, versus you have a really interesting story about how 
the construction of a highway right through the middle of the neighborhood ends up turning one of them into this incredibly desirable location and basically kills the other neighborhood. And so it's like the micro and the macro intersecting with each other, which is just really interesting. Um, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think playing around with scale is absolutely essential to how we do our analysis, right? I think we miss quite a bit, um, and this is kind of a methodological point, um, but we miss quite a bit um, as political scientists when we don't um, uh, pay attention to the politics that operates in the making of those scales and kind of think of them separately as separate zones. Uh, but instead, for me, um, absolutely, like, you know, uh, these scales are always interacting um, in really interesting ways and at different levels and uh, contingently and and sort of simultaneously um, to produce a really interesting politics. And so um, big, big kind of uh, affirmation for, for the need to op kind of think about the politics of scale. We've been speaking to Sarah Alcazaz about her new book, Politics in the Crevices, um, just out with Duke University Press. Uh, we, we only scratched the surface, so um, there's a lot, lot in there for everyone to check out. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much, Mark, and thank you all for listening. This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and thank you to Sarah Alcazaz for joining us on this week's podcast to talk about her book, Politics in the Crevices. Da, da, da.